Turn in your Bibles tonight to Amos chapter 6. Amos 6. As we finish up the book of Amos, we're now coming upon kind of the results, if you will, of the vision that Amos has had to this point in time. And we're going to go through a whole series of things that were surely applicable then, but also very applicable now. There, there are conditions that existed at the time, but there are also conditions that exist in our own hearts and minds. And one of the great tragedies, one of the great travesties of the Christian experience is to see the Lord work, to watch him move, and then come to a place of utter indifference. And it is a time in, I think, most everyone's life that we need to dig deep. We need to reach back and realize what it is that the Lord's at work doing in our lives. Because there are times when we're tempted to, to think, as the psalmist said, uh, how long, O Lord, will it be? There are times in our lives when we look at the world and we say, are we really making a difference? There's days that we have like that. And one of the great temptations is to become indifferent. Not so much apathy, but to simply not really care. To look at the things that are going on in our lives, in the life of the church, in the world, and just simply say, you know what, I'm kind of good with where I'm at right now. I'm reasonably comfortable. I got all that I have need of, and sure, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as it were. But it's really not touching me. And so we just sit back and rest on our laurels. We become indifferent. And so tonight, Amos begins to make sure that we understand not giving a hoot, not giving a holler, uh, can be really costly. Because the Lord doesn't like indifference. If you remember what He said to the church at Laodicea, He said, I would that you were either hot or cold. I'd actually prefer that you were frozen solid as opposed to lukewarm. I, I, I prefer that you're on fire. But lukewarmness, indifference, is a huge danger. And it comes out of a bunch of things that I think we can see in the passage tonight. And so let's ask God to speak to us as we study His Word. Lord, thank You tonight for... Thanks for worship tonight, God. That we could praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we could stand in Your presence and just exalt Your holy name for who You are. That in the midst of all that's going on in our lives and in this world, Lord, in this state, in our nation, God, we can say that our Lord God reigns. And we bless You for that. And Lord, help us to not take You for granted. Help us to not become indifferent. Lord, help us to care. Help us to be 
counted. Lord, a sheep to the slaughter. Lord, help us to spend our lives in pursuit of the things that please you. We bless you. We praise you. Speak to us, we pray, through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Amos 6. And so he begins by saying, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. I don't know about you, but I've never considered having things well something I get too terribly woeful over. It is one of those things that we as human beings are generally kind of pleased about. Amen? I think when things are going good, most of us are more on the side of, love that. Kind of happy about it, in fact. But for some reason, and it becomes clear, he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, and trust in Mount Samaria. Now notice he's addressing both the southern kingdom, Zion, which would have been David's city just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom. Remember, Assyria has not invaded yet, but they will very shortly. And he's saying to both places, and if you remember our study on Sunday, if you were here with us, uh, there's been a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria since these days. And so the the temple that was there at that time worshipped uh, a false god of the Canaanites, but it was then taken over and ultimately would be dedicated to a sect of Judaism that was those who were uh, inculcated into the Assyrian population by intermarrying with Jews. But he's saying, man, you better be careful where you put your trust. And we'll look at these things in detail in a moment. Notable persons in the chief nation. And he's, the context here is trust. What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Where is your trust placed? To whom the house of Israel comes? Go over to Kalna and see. And from there go to Hamath, the great. And then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is your territory greater than their territory? And it kind of seems like, eh, what's it got to do with this? Why should we care? But this woe is addressed, and it carries with it a sense of, of attitude towards God. Because every one of these places have something in common. They were all places where God was no longer worshipped. They were all places where God became secondary. And when I say worship, it doesn't mean that God didn't have his temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that every single Jew and every single person in the region of Samaria had forsaken the Lord. But it means that what had come upon the people of that day was a general indifference to God himself. It's like, ah... We live in Jerusalem. We're cool. We live in Samaria. We, we, we got it going on. We live in America, the most Christian place in the world. We live in Southern California, the home of Calvary Chapel. You, you see, you can begin to rest and trust in something that can't ultimately sustain you. 
church can't sustain you. The Lord sustains you. May do it through church. May bring you into a new understanding of his word. But your relationship is with the Lord. And they had forgotten that. And they began to trust in a whole bunch of other things. And I want to show you just a couple of them here. First cause of their indifference was simply their geography. When you look at these two places that are mentioned, they were two geographically isolated and relatively remote places wherein you could look at where they were and say, you know what, hey, we're safe here. We're good. I mean, if the Assyrians come, they probably won't even make it here. Can I say to you, there's a lot of Christians in America who think the same thing about the United States. We're okay. We're good. We're in America. After all, you know, we got middle America. we got a church on every corner. You, you go throughout much of middle America, you'll actually see that. There'll be a Baptist church on one, an Episcopalian church on the other, a Presbyterian on the other side, a Methodist church on the other corner. Church on every corner. You can become oriented towards the tradition of their simply being churchianity. Look, I go to church. These guys were saying, hey, we've been here for a long time. Nothing bad's happened. And so situated there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, it was considered impregnable. You can read the 78th Psalm, 132nd Psalm, talking about Zion, the holy hill. Samaria, physically the same thing, very secure. But when God decides that he's going to deal with you, it don't matter where you live. When God says, look, I want your heart. I, I, I don't just want your pocketbook. I don't just want your person. I want your heart. He wants your heart. And so holy hill or not, geographic separation or not, God is going to do what God wants to do. The second cause, the next cause here that we can, can truly see is their political power. And it's true with many today. I've kind of, and I, I have to tell you this, I, though it's extremely important, and quite frankly, I believe that it sets the stage for what Scripture says is going to happen in the very last days. It's almost laughable how we're treating this whole thing in Ukraine right now. Our, our president seems to think, well, yeah, well, no big deal. Russia just invaded another country. Oh well. And you know why that is? You know why he wants to cut our military in half, basically? It's because he thinks that that's sufficient. We have enough. We're impregnable, that, that, that we're geographically isolated, which we are. You notice we don't have many neighbors except Canada and Mexico. I think we're okay against them militarily. But if you look at the political situation, it's like, ah, we're fine. We're good. These guys were thinking the same thing. But the heart of the nation was corrupt. Politically, Zion was powerful. Samaria was powerful. They were geographically isolated as well. The notable men in Israel's government came and gave their opinion. They were usually pretty spot on. 
think we can say the same thing. We think, well, our political pundits are better than everyone else's political pundits. Yeah, I mean, when John Kerry speaks, the world listens to a stand-up comedy routine. Basically. Yeah, we have a tendency to look at the power of politics, the power of geography, and we say, eh, why do we really need to trust in the Lord with all of our heart? And how come we can't lean on our understanding? Why do we need to acknowledge Him in all of our ways, as Proverbs 3 reminds us? You see, they had a false confidence based on the advice of the experts. Can I share something with you? Beware of the advice of experts. Because if you really look at the word expert, it means a washed up drip under pressure. It is an expert. Used to be, and they're just a spurt. So they're a washed up, used to be, drip under pressure. Beware of experts. Because sometimes they try and creep into the spiritual dimension, don't they? Isn't our government trying to tell us how we ought to live our lives according to how we think we should interpret Scripture? They want to get involved in that? You don't believe that. I grew up in San Diego County. I don't even know how many times I've been to the cross on top of Mount Soledad, the one on top of Mount Helix, which has already been fought over. They're getting ready to tear the one down on top of Mount Soledad. Why? Because three people said that they can see it when they're going down the 805 freeway or the 5 freeway or driving by and there's a cross up there and it's offensive. Why don't you ask the war veterans how they feel about it? And so the government says because it must be a religious symbol, well, we don't want to offend anyone with religious symbols, so we're going to remove God from everything in our government, which is exactly what's going on in our world today especially here in our country. A, a third and final thing in this passage, they, they kind of saw themselves as the big fish. And, and Christians have a tendency to do that as well. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, amen? They're God's chosen people. They're still God's chosen people. To this day, they are God's chosen people. To them God gave the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, it's yours. It's an eternal inheritance. This is a covenant between me and you and us alone. Belongs to you. Christians are also chosen by God. Amen? Different way. We're not given the covenantal relationship that the Jews have, but we have been chosen. Your Bible says, they're in the book of Ephesians, before the foundation of the world. In Christ Jesus. So we're special. And you can begin to think that you're the big fish. You can almost get the, the, the impression that we're impregnable. That everything we do is just going to be okay. Because after all, we're God's chosen people. But when God's chosen people don't do God's things God's way, God has something to say about it. And whether you're his chosen people or not, he gets out the big piece of wood, which he used to be able to use in school. Now the only thing that's wood in school is some of the teacher's heads. 
I'm convinced of that after talking to some folks today. It's like, really? You think that it's wrong to have some type of, type of order in the classroom? That it's bad to tell the kids that they can't shoot each other with rubber bands and you know, that used to get you sent to the principal's office when I was in school, and he pulled out the paddle. And just to make it more dramatic, it always hung on the wall. So when you walked in, you're like, oh, no. Chosen or not, the paddle can be used. And so he says here, look, Syria, Philistia, you bigger than them? You see, indifference and complacency is kind of the root of an insidious sin because it's based on lies, it's motivated by pride, and it leads to trusting someone other than God. That's why it's so dangerous. And so... He says, woe to you who are indifferent. The second thing we see picking up in verse 3 is woe to the indulgent. Because indifference has a tendency to lead to indulgence. You see, when you get indifferent, in other words, you don't honor God for who God is, then ultimately you kind of start doing whatever you want. And you do it whenever you want, and you do it however much you want, because you really don't care what God thinks. And so these things are natural occurrences and, and a path that is, that is brought into your life by taking the first step, which is dishonoring the Lord. You ever wondered why God put the first commandment first? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, what he's really saying is, I alone am God. And so he says next in verse 3, Woe to those who, woe to you who put far off the day of doom. Isn't it crazy how many people are going, oh, that'll never happen. I can tell you in talking to people about end times events and the things that Scripture clearly says are going to unfold in the last days, people go, ah, that'll never happen. God would never destroy the world. He wouldn't wipe out billions of people. He would never, ever even allow that to happen, much less do it himself. You realize how dangerous that is? Because when you take that path, you deny that God was truthful. You see how it begins in the lie? You're saying, no, God didn't mean that. Even if he said it, he didn't mean it. You who put off afar the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near. Isn't it crazy how our world... You ever looked at the, the rap culture? How in the world is that stuff not illegal? How can you possibly say those things over the airways? How can you possibly worship people who make a living basically being vile, despicable, and disgusting, and we protect that under the First Amendment? First Amendment was never intended by our founders to protect rottenness. That was not the intention. And yet, violence. It's almost worshipped. You don't believe that? Look at Hollywood. 
look at video games, and look at the result of it, which is what's going on in our country today. He says, who lie on beds of ivory, who stretch out on your couches. Now, this is not a condemnation. Anybody that has a couch, please don't go home and burn it. Who eat lambs from the flock. You see, during that day, lambs were very valuable because they were going to become full-fledged sheep. When they use the term mutton, that means a lamb who's no longer any good for shearing. You can't get much out of them. They're about ready to croak, so you eat them. Lambs were the young ones. And so they never killed lambs. They only killed the older sheep. And so when they got rich, got so many sheep, it didn't matter. They got sheep coming out. Man, I have, I got, I'm a sheepaholic. And so I'm going to kill my lambs, and I'm going to eat my lambs because they're a lot more tender. They're more juicy. I like lamb chops. I don't like mutton chops quite so. If you've had both of those things, you know what I'm saying. Lamb chops, big difference from mutton chops. And I'm not talking about the sideburns that we had back in the 80s, okay? And calves from the midst of the... Notice how calves, same things as a full-blown cow or a steer of young age, it's nice and tender, and so you've got to have more of them. If you're going to eat the young ones, then you've got to have more of them, so it's a sign of wealth, it's a sign of indulgence. Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments. Now, I know most worship leaders just object to this whole passage of Scripture, but you need to understand it's not condemning music. It's, it's condemning the, the fact that they sat idly around doing nothing who invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls. You see, back in that day and time, a cup was used to drink wine. It was a sign that you were taking it very seriously, that you weren't overindulging. And so they said, hey, if a cup's good, a bowl must be better. It's kind of like our world today. You know, a can of beer used to be 12. And by the way, I'm not telling you to go drink beer. Mark that on the CD. I'm not telling you to go drink beer. 12 ounce can of beer. Now it's like a seven. It's like a keg all by itself in a can. You know, people don't go buy a beer. They buy a case or two. Can I have a case of that beer? It's the same deal. Anoint yourselves with the best of ointments. I don't know how many of you have been to the Lancome counter. I go there frequently because it's so good for my skin. You look at some of this stuff, you realize that the cosmetics industry in the United States of America is $26 billion. $26 billion. That is larger than the gross domestic product of over half of the world's nations. Woe to you who anoint yourselves with the best appointments. You pick that. Oh, well, it's only $175 an ounce. But are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. You don't care about things that really matter, is the point. 
And therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at the banquets shall be removed. And he says, look, you exploited the poor, you're living in pleasure, not for the glory of God. And again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. There's nothing wrong with good food. There's nothing wrong with good music, provided they're things that are uh, where they should be and that the Lord is still utmost in your heart. And I know people who have wealth and they absolutely love the Lord and they use their wealth for kingdom things. And yes, they have nice houses and nice cars and they have wonderful meals and probably some of you do. I do. I enjoy a good meal. But when you start taking decorations and making them uh, more important than divinity in your life, like these ivory carvings that were found in Samaria, little secret, there's no source of ivory in that area of the world. The mountain ibex would have been the only thing that would have had horns you might have been able to carve something out of. The scimitar horned oryx, maybe. But elephants were a long ways away. It had to be traded for. There were no whales in that general vicinity that had large enough teeth for them to carve scrimshaw. So they went out of their way to collect things that were very, very valuable, extremely costly, and yet provided really nothing for the people who really had need. And so in that area of the world, their indifference began to show in what they possessed. They were living in pleasure, and people who would normally have slept on mats were reclining on these glorious beds covered with ivory. They used ivory to decorate their mansions. If you go to Herod's palace, there are still bits of ivory in tiles in the wall to this day. You see, they kind of things had things out of perspective. Wealthy, elegant feasts. And again, I'm not telling you it's a wrong thing to go take your wife to some really nice dinner. We do that occasionally. Matter of fact, guys, you should do that every once in a while. And you should make sure that she knows that you are absolutely indebted to her for being your queen in your home. However, to do that every day, probably not of the Lord. Somewhat wasteful. And he says here, he talks about musical instruments. David designed and made musical instruments, but he used them to praise the Lord, not praise himself. Amen? Abraham was able to prepare elegant feasts, put his guests at those tables, so... Nothing wrong with those. But what he's getting at is those things can bring you to ruin. And so he says, don't let these things bring you to ruin. You see, that actually ultimately would happen. And the reason we know that would happen is when you look at it, you you can see the effects in, in the Roman citizens. You could see the effects in the Greek citizens. Ultimately, there is this tremendous disparity between the rich and the poor. And one thing that was important in Jewish culture was family. And so in the Jewish culture, they took other people in. They provided for other people. In fact, there was, in essence, a temple tax that was to provide for that. And so they were taking things that rightly belonged to God, and they were spending them on indulgent living. And that's the picture. It's amazing to me how many people in our world today, they don't ever give They never give. They don't give to 
people. They don't give to the church. They, they spend their money exclusively on themselves. One of the most one of the most appalling bumper stickers I've ever seen that wasn't you know just plain filthy was I'm spending my grandkids' inheritance. It's on the back of a big motorhome. Your Bible says you are to leave an inheritance to your children's children. That's what your Bible actually says. And so in this case at that time, they were doing exactly what God told them not to do. And it's difficult today to, to find people who are actually truly burdened about other people. How do they care? They occasionally say, ah, well, you know, yeah, we're trying to do something about that. But to really have a heartache for those who are broken, it's kind of rare. Today, too many Christians are laughing, really, I think, just as James says, when we ought to be weeping occasionally. There's nothing wrong with shedding some tears over the way the things are going in this world. And again, I'm not saying lose your joy and wander around just constantly weeping, but it is good to acknowledge the fact that there are some things that are pretty messed up in our world, and it ought to bother us. It ought to cause us to stop, take notice, have a little pause and say, Lord, what would you have me do about that? Not, boy, I sure hope you send somebody to do something about that, but send you into the harvest field as a laborer. You see, they were, they were kind of tolerating sin when they should have been opposing it. It's a lot like having a dinner in an expensive restaurant with some friends, and it's kind of dimly lighted, and you can barely read the menu. You all know that. As you get older, if you haven't noticed, you learn to carry around reading glasses everywhere you go. And you sit down in one of those restaurants, and you're looking for the table that has the light right over the top of it because you can't see at all. Interesting thing happens, though. You eventually get used to the darkness. And the longer you sit there, your eyes adjust, and pretty soon there's enough light in that dark place to, to let you function. And so you get okay with the darkness. You're all right with not having any light anywhere. And these wealthy exploiters of the poor were just like that. They were accustomed to the darkness. didn't really matter if there was any light shining at all. They were just fine sitting there in the dark. That's what indulgence does. King Jeroboam and, and his priest Amaziah, political leaders of that day, if you read the book of Judges in Judges chapter 7, you find out that king and that high priest were the first people to be judged. So I take it kind of seriously what God's called me to do because I know what's going to happen because my Bible says so. Let not many of you become teachers for know this, you will suffer the stricter judgment. I'm going to have to answer to God someday for how I handled his word and how I taught what I did, what I said. And so to me, it's a serious calling. It's not a job. Ultimately, during the time of King Jeroboam, even their followers ultimately had to exchange their, their lounge chairs, if you will, for chains. And so God takes it very seriously. A third area that we can see here, and, and again, indifference, indulgence, leads to impudence. And 
what he begins to say now is here, here's where these things go. It says in verse 8, Then the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his palaces, and therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And so the Lord says, because I can't swear by anybody that's higher than me, I'm going to swear by myself, and I don't like what's going on. And if I can't trust a guy like Joseph or Jacob, if I can't look at the promised land and say, look, I promised you these, these things to you, and yet you're not using them for me, if that isn't the natural recourse, then sometimes what ultimately happens, you go from indifference, which is kind of passive, to impudent, which is kind of thumbing your nose at God. You see the difference between those two things? You get to that place to where you look at what God says, and you say, ah, not only do I not actually care, I'm going to go the other way, and I'm actually going to tell God to take a hike. That's what happens. It's a gradual, slippery slope. Very few people start out, and I'll just use a simple example. There are very few people who start out, you know, smoking a little dope that believe that they're going to become a heroin addict. But ultimately, that what we call a slippery slope, where you go from indifference, ah, it doesn't really matter, to impudence, I don't care. Pretty soon you're doing things you thought you'd never do. And you're doing the very things you thought you would never do. And in fact, you actually at one point in time were telling other people not to do them. And now you're doing them yourself. Why? Because of that slippery slope. The cost is tremendous. And look at these things. First of them, the cost is death. And then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in the house, they shall die. You said he used to have their own house. And now because of what will come with the Assyrians, they're going to end up in one house. And all ten of them are going to die. You see that indifference that leads to impudence can cost you your life. And when a relative of the dead and with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, they will say to the one inside the house, Are there any more with you? It got so bad that basically everybody was in danger of death. That's, that's one of the, the hidden things that is so troublesome to me in our world today as we watch breakdown after breakdown of the family, specifically of traditional marriage, a man, a woman that produced children, as we watch what's going on in our media to where now stuff that would have been considered in my high school years would have actually been pornographic and would have gotten you a sentence in jail from putting them on anything are now television advertisements. Indifference that leads to impudence leads to death. It can cost you your life. And then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name. It was so bad that it was blasphemous in that context to even mention the name of the Lord. 
Now, I don't know how many of you, I, Connie and I watched a little bit of the Oscars just because every once in a while I do a, what I call a cultural checkup. I just, you know, am I hallucinating or is the world actually getting worse? And so I will watch things like this. Frankly, I was aghast. I was stunned. Virtually the whole program, here it is, it's Ellen DeGenerate is the host. Sorry, but that's how I feel. I'm just going to call it like it is. That's the way I see it. She's the host. The movies that end up not getting the Oscars, the only ones that you could have actually gone and watched because they were clean, and the ones that get the Oscars are about people who, in a tragic sense, have wasted their lives. They now have AIDS and they're dying. Aren't we glorifying the very things that God says we shouldn't be doing? You see, and to me, as I look at the way the world's going, I'm going, man, Lord, it, it, pretty soon it's going to be blasphemous to mention your name on TV. I caught Matthew McConaughey's uh, acceptance speech, and he mentioned a higher power and then kind of said it was God, and he did everything but actually say he had a relationship with God. Why? Because you can't say that. You're considered a moron if you go on television and go, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. But you could walk up there and make every filthy remark that you could ever think of, and the whole crowd would probably stand up and give you an ovation. It's the way it was then. It's the path that leads to death. A second cost is destruction. For behold, the Lord gives a command. Notice who gave the command. It wasn't just some benign, arbitrary event, circumstances that were out of the political control of the Assyrians that brought them to the place, hey, we're just going to go take on, you know, we're going to go over here and wipe out the Jews. God gave the command. He said, look, they won't listen. He will break the great house into bits the little house into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? And yet you have turned justice into gall, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, you who rejoice over Lodebar, who say, we have not taken Carnamim for ourselves by our own strength. You see, your Bible says there in the 16th proverb, chapter of Proverbs that pride goes before Destruction. When you begin to thumb your nose at God, when you become indifferent towards what He says, when you ignore the things that He has commanded us to do, and then He sends destruction, you can also guarantee that whatever He aims to do, He's going to get done. And so He says of the summer houses, you guys built the houses, know this, they won't be there when you get back. There'll be Assyrians living in them. And in fact, they're going to take captive your families. They will marry into your families. And you will cease to exist as the ten northern tribes. Israel isn't even going to be there. And so he begins to kind of argue, if you will, Amos does, from nature itself. Horses are smart enough to not gallop on rocks. If you ever take a horse and walk them across a paved highway you 
can't get them to run. It's an impossibility. They will not run on a slick surface. You know why? They're smarter than us. They won't run. They know, hey, this is no place for a horse to be galloping. And yet people, eh, you know, maybe we can pull it off. Farmers are too wise to, to plow rocks or try and plow the sea, if you will. You say, it doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what they were doing. Plain common sense was thrown out the window. And so God's really saying to him, look, you've poisoned my heavenly judicial system. You've made righteousness into evil and evil into righteousness. You're like horses trying to run on rocks. You're like farmers trying to plant and plow in rocks. I'm not sure when Israel took all of these places that are mentioned and turned them into cities, but I can tell you this. They ceased to exist then, and they do not exist today. They're ruined. God kept his promise. He said, look, don't thumb your nose at me. It'll cost you maybe your life. It'll cost you destruction. And how do we apply these things? Look at your life today. Look at our life today. Look at your family's life today. When God's word speaks, God intends us to hear what he says and to do it. It's not that complex of a process. It isn't something we have to go, well, you know, let me check with some theologian on this. When God has spoken clearly by his word, the word to us is, do it. Just do it. Nike it. Just do it. It's best for you. It's best for others. It's the sure path to God's plan. When you know what his word says, do it. But I can tell you how to get God a little bit upset by either not caring or, worse yet, directly rebelling. Saying, look, I don't care that you said that. I'm going to do it my way. Again, one of the reasons that I'm so dead set that the church must stand up against the tide of evil in our nation today. If we don't, we're going down with the proverbial boat. Okay, There is no Christian country that's apart from the United States of America. We're part of the U.S. of A., and as the church in America, if we won't stand up, then we will go down with the ship. Now, will he take care of us in that sinking? Yes. But you may be doing a whole bunch of suffering for not having stood. That you otherwise might have missed. We might have otherwise missed. Basically, they're, what they're doing here is boasting in their military victories at Lodabar and Karnamim. It's It's two places that uh, interestingly enough, Lodabar means of nothing. Our victory of nothing. We fought the battle of nothing and we won. You know, you can kind of get the wordplay there. It's like in God's eyes, what's every military victory? You think God's impressed by the military prowess of any nation? His word says that he exalts nations, he lifts them up. And he takes them down. When he says it's time for the U.S. to be done, the U.S. will be done. When he says it's time for Russia to be done, Russia will be done. When he says it's time for China to be done, China will be done. 
It's not in the hands of man. It's in the hands of God. He is the one who lifts up. He is the one who tears down. And he does it in his time. And so boasting in your own strength can cost you destruction. And finally, the cost of indifference is disgrace. It's defeat. I don't know about you. I hate losing. I am a rotten loser. Okay, I just don't lose well. Some people are okay at losing. Me, I'm... mm I hate losing. I don't care if we're playing tiddlywinks, for those of you that remember that game. Remember that game, the little cup, and you had the big chip and the little chips, and you flip them and try and get them in the cup? It's like, I'm winning. Tiddlywinks became a matter of blood. Dink. Yahtzee, you know, you're playing the 700th game. I'm going to win this time, you know. Most people don't like to lose. I can tell you how to lose. Be indifferent. Be indulgent. Be impudent against God. You will lose. But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. Notice what he says. These are his people. These are God's Chosen people. And he's straight up through the prophet Amos saying to him, Look, I'm going to raise up a nation against you. You're going to lose. You want to play by your rules? You want to cheat? You're going to lose. Says the Lord God of hosts, And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arba. He looks over the nation and he says, Look, you guys are busy rehearsing your little victory celebrations. And some of you were around, if you remember back, especially in like the 60s and 70s, these humongous military parades that they used to hold in Moscow uh, on every single victory day. And just, you know, they'd have ICBM after ICBM and and. Tens of thousands of soldiers all marching in unison, and they're, you know, they're singing the, the the Russian national anthem, which, by the way, is a pretty powerful national anthem. When you listen to it, you're like, "Wow, I think I want to be a Russian." You know, they're they're marching with their goose step thing that they stole from the Nazis and all of that, and they're they're on these military and they're just rehearsing their victory. You know, what's crazy is most of the military hardware that you saw there didn't even work. They were unarmed missiles. They were tanks without ammunition. They were absolutely poverty-stricken at the time, and it was all for show. The whole thing was so that they could tape it and then broadcast it, and then people around the world, oh, the mighty Soviet military. That's kind of what the Jews were doing. Well, you know, I mean, we took, we went to the valley of Arboth and to the entrance of Hamath and we won these amazing battles. And then you read where those places were. There were little holes in the wall of about 1,000, 1,500 people, maybe each. And when the Jews attacked them, they barely won. Isn't it funny how we kind of inflate our victories and we kind of hide our defeats? We act like, oh, you know, we're, I got this under control, you know. 
give you a little secret here. The, the way to success is through humble acknowledgement that apart from him you can do nothing. But that by him and through him you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, the Jews had kind of forgotten who brought them the victories that they, that they really could be proud of. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, but who won the battle of Jericho? It was the Lord. It was his power. Because we know what happened when they went without God's power. The little city of Ai. Insignificant little city, not very far from Jericho, and they got stomped at Ai. Because they were trusting, hey, look, we took Jericho. This walled city. We're awesome. We don't need God. We're going to take our indifference. We're going to go over here. We're going to just stomp them out. They got killed. Hamath was in the north and Arabah was in the south. And basically what he's saying is there isn't going to be any place that Assyria isn't going to go and take everybody captive. You may have thought you were all that, but you're not. And so by the time Amos begins to speak these words, I'm sure they were looking actually at Assyria going, there's no way in the world Assyria has come in this direction. I mean, why would they do that? They're headquartered over there in Nineveh. There's a lot of desert between us and them. Doesn't make any military sense for them to come this way. The proverb says, A little sleep and a little slumber and poverty comes upon you as a bandit. A little indifference. A little, I don't care. And bam. God controls the nations. And so as he finished preaching these messages, he's basically preaching against the proud accomplishments of the nation Israel. He's saying, you guys better not trust in what you did yesterday because it don't matter for today. What matters is where's your heart today? And there's an important closing lesson in this. There's going to be nothing but visions for the rest of the book, so we need to get settled in here to what I believe God is trying to say to us today. These things are for us. They're God's Word. Were they pointed directly at the nation Israel? Yes. Were they referring to the Assyrians coming and destroying them? Yes, they were. But God was looking at their hearts. And so as we kind of finish up the rest of this book, it's a good time to look at your own heart. Look at the heart with which you lead your family. Look at the heart that you take into your public life. Look at the heart that other people can see. Because people can see at least a portion of your heart. They may not see all of it, but God does. But people can see a portion of your heart. They know, in essence, whom you serve. And you know how they know that? By where your treasure is. Do you, do you speak of, is the name of the Lord on your lips? Are you engaged in the things of God? Are you looking at the world around you through the lens of Scripture? Are you concerned with eternal things? 
That's how people kind of know where your heart is. You see, they should know where our heart is because our treasure, all of us, our time, our talent, our actual treasure itself is invested in kingdom things. And when it's invested in kingdom things, then we're not going to be indifferent. We're not going to be indulgent. We're not going to be impudent. We're not going to go with the flow. We're going to go against the tide and we're going to stand. And as scripture says, having therefore done all to stand, stand. We're not just going to stand when it's convenient. We're not going to stand when it's politically expedient. We're going to stand all the time and say, Lord, I'm yours. What I own is yours. What I do with what you've given me in stewardship is yours. And what I'm about is you. And if we do that, you don't need to worry about any of this stuff. Because God always takes care of his remnant. But if you join in with the indifferent crowd, the indulgent crowd, the impudent crowd, then you can pretty much count on also being in with the crowd that experienced death, destruction, disgrace, and defeat. Because his character hasn't changed. And so, though it's a heavy message, it's also a liberating message. Let me tell you why. Because just like children need boundaries so that they know where they can exist, so the body of Christ needs boundaries so we know where we can exist and ultimately thrive. Because I thrive in the center of God's will. I exist when I get outside of God's will. Sometimes I fail, stumble, and I fall prey to death, disease, and destruction. Amen? But if, I, if I'm walking in the Spirit, your Bible says I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I won't go after the things that I'm not supposed to have in my life. And so as we walk there, then we have God on our side. And if you have God on your side, whom then shall I fear, your Bible says? For if thou art with me, who can be against me? Amen? Amen? That's what we want. I want God with me. And if he's with me, I'm not worried about who's against me. I'm not worried about going the wrong direction because he's with me. I'll go the right direction because he's with me. And I pray that we do that. pray that we learn that. And I pass that lesson along, please. Our world needs this lesson. Our world needs you standing strong. Our, need, our world needs you standing against and standing for, not just against things, but for the Lord. In a powerful way, so that when someone sees you, they go, man, there's something significantly different. The world's going this way, but they're going that way. Why? And then you have, a, you have an ability then to give them a reason for the hope that lies within you. Because you could get hopeless pretty quick if you look at the world. I'm not hopeless. I'm hopeful. I don't know when the Lord's coming, but I know what I want to do. I want to take some more people to heaven. Don't want to see them perish. So let's be busy about our Father's business. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. And again, Lord, we, we know that these words were written as a word to Israel, but they apply to us, at least in that sense that 
we can look forward and know that your character is still the same. That you abhor evil and you hate indifference and indulgence. Lord, you also hate the impudent. Lord, we, we don't want to be in that category. We don't want you against us. We want you for us. And so, Lord, we pray that in this time that we have left on this earth, however long it is, that we would simply dedicate ourselves to to walking with you. Lord, attempting as best we can to do all to stand in these last days. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.